Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. As we look into the New Testament today, we'll be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 1 through 34. We'll look into rejecting the new. The Jews in Thessalonica were not interested in the new faith or the new thing that Paul preached, but the Gentile God-seekers accepted the gospel and were saved. We'll read about investigating the new. The next town was just the opposite. The Jews in Berea took time to examine the evidence and study the scriptures. There are fair-minded people in every nation, and God knows who they are. And then we'll be looking for the new. The people in Athens spent their time and nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Boy, how like our world today. The quest for novelty overshadows the search for reality. Paul's sermon was a masterpiece of tact and teaching, and a few people were converted. Paul offered them newness of life through the resurrection, and most of the listeners rejected it. And now, let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. June 26th, the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 34. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, This Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas, so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For I was walking along, and I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown god. This god whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. He is the god who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, We want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Today we're reading Psalm 144, verses 1 through 15. This is another battle song to help you in your spiritual warfare. Listen, let God train you before the battle. In yourself, you're nothing, but God loves you and equips you for what lies ahead. God does not always explain how He prepares you, so accept His disciplines by faith. David fought a lion and a bear before God let him fight a giant. Each morning, Put on the whole armor of God and be ready for the trumpet call. Let God help you in the battle. God's hand is there to strengthen and deliver you. So don't be afraid to engage the enemy. You're fighting the Lord's battles, and He will not abandon you. You can count on that. And don't forget to sing. Sing God's praises after the battle. Thank Him for all He's done for you personally 
for your family and for your nation. Psalm 144, verses 1 through 15, a Psalm of David. Praise the Lord, who is my rock. He trains my hands for war and gives my fingers skill for battle. He is my loving ally and my fortress, my tower of safety, my rescuer. He is my shield, and I take refuge in him. He makes the nations submit to me. O Lord, what are human beings that you should notice them, mere mortals that you should think about them? For they are like a breath of air. Their days are like a passing shadow. Open the heavens, Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so they billow smoke. Hurl your lightning bolts and scatter your enemies. Shoot your arrows and confuse them. Reach down from heaven and rescue me. Rescue me from deep waters, from the power of my enemies. Their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. I will sing a new song to you, O God. I will sing your praises with a ten-stringed harp, for you grant victory to kings. You rescued your servant David from the fatal sword. Save me. Rescue me from the power of my enemies. Their mouths are full of lies. They swear to tell the truth, but they lie instead. May our sons flourish in their youth like well-nurtured plants. May our daughters be like graceful pillars carved to beautify a palace. May our barns be filled with crops of every kind. May the flocks in our fields multiply by the thousands, even tens of thousands. And may our oxen be loaded down with produce. May there be no enemy breaking through our walls, no going into captivity, no cries of alarm in our town squares. Yes, joyful are those who live like this. Joyful indeed are those whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28. A truly wise person uses few words. A person with understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Yeah, this is Jim Hank. Um, third phase, I want to throw out an affirmation to John Sharp. I just appreciate, uh, John, everything you're doing for the refuge, stepping up and going into leadership. I really appreciate the, your demeanor and how you treat the guys with fairness and respect and love. And uh, God, I can see God just doing wonderful things in your life. And um, just keep it up, John, and uh, take care. Love you. Bye. What if the armies of the Lord Picked up and dusted off their swords Vowed to set the captive free And not let Satan have one more What if the church for heaven's sake Finally stepped up to the plate Took a stand upon God's promise And storm hell's rusty what if his people prayed? And those who bear his name would only seek his face, yeah. And turn from their own way. And what would happen if we 
This is Jed Hopler. I want to give an affirmation to Adrian up at phase one. Adrian, uh, I just really love your childlike wonder in spiritual things and just your heart uh, for the Lord and just your pursuit of him there. Uh, just you're a good, good man. Uh, become a great friend of me already. I just look forward to seeing you up here in phase two uh, fairly soon. God bless you, man. Amen. Grab a Bible. We're going to dive right in. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there while I try to figure out how to work this stand. There we go. While you're turning, I just want to quickly introduce myself. My name is Shane. Um, I am one of the pastors at a church called Vineyard Columbus. I was actually on staff at Veritas here for a long time. Um, And so I feel right at home with y'all, and I'm going to preach like I'm at home, if that's okay with you guys. i just give you my guts, and we're going to worship Jesus like he saved us. Sound good? Good. Happy Dad's Day. What are the dads? Make some noise, dads. What's the noise dads make? Whatever. Yeah. Hey, I can't wait to be a dad. I love my dad, too. My dad's cool, man, but I'm excited to be a dad, so hopefully the Lord will let me. Let me do that one day. We'll see. I think Noah's going to give a shout out to all the dads afterward. Romans chapter 7. Are you there? If you're there, let's stand together and read the word. Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read four verses. One of them won't be on the screen because I told that guy the wrong number. I'm going to begin in verse 18 and then you can catch me in verse 19. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Uh, I want to talk to you for the next few moments uh, from the subject of addiction. Um, It's a big subject, and we don't have much time to cover all that needs to be covered. So we're going to read the Word and invite God's help. And uh, with great expectation, just believe that He's going to do something awesome. Amen? Let's read together. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 18, it says, this is Paul speaking. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Evil lies close at hand. The title of my message tonight is Fatal Attractions. And new affections for all my note takers. Fatal attractions and new affections. I thought that was a sweet title. So there you go. Let's pray one more time. God, come. Do what you do. You're in the business of saving and healing and restoring. I'm tired. You know it. I need you. We need you. So just come and and grace us with your presence. Move in power and demonstration. Uh, We are excited about what you're going to do. Help us to respond to your word and worship. We don't want to be just... Hearers of the word, but doers also. So draw forth from our hearts the worship that is due exclusively to the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Before you sit down, give somebody a hug and tell them they look good tonight. And then we'll get started. Amen. So preaching on uh, a subject as weighty as addiction, uh, it can be exceedingly difficult, obviously, uh, because it's such a, a big deal. And it would almost seem uh, trite and insensitive for me to stand up here and try to pretend like I can solve all of our problems in one 30-minute sermon. Addiction 
has ravaged entire families. Addiction shows no partiality. Young, old, rich, poor, all of us in some measure struggle with some type of addiction. Substance abuse and addiction um, has, has impacted my life and my family personally. Um, just a, a little bit about myself and my story. So um, we had a lot of addiction in our family and, and anything imaginable, uh, probably my family went through it, all kinds of foreclosure and bankruptcy. Uh, we lived paycheck to paycheck. I grew up broke in the hood, so when the money ran out, you didn't eat, and the money seemed to always be running out, right? Uh, by the time I left for college, I lived in over 15 different rental homes and apartments here in the city. 15, because we were bouncing around all over the place. We would, we would be evicted or foreclosed on, whatever it was. So I'm, I'm well acquainted with the pain associated with addiction. And so what I don't want to do is stand up here and, and be flippant with you all and simply say to you, well, just get over it because the Bible says so, right? I feel like that would be a gross mishandling of something that is, that is so big and, and so important, um, you know, and, and so I want to acknowledge on the front end that, that addiction is, is a real struggle, uh, a struggle that I believe many of us in here tonight are in the midst of even now. So I want to acknowledge that. But I also believe in the power of the gospel. Amen. I believe in the power of Jesus to change and transform and to bring healing and restoration in our lives. But I think if we're honest, uh, some of us in here, we've probably lost hope. You know, you would... Maybe in the back of your mind, you're saying to me right now, well, Shane, that's cool. I'm with you, but, but you don't know me, man. Uh, I've, I've tried, right? I, I've, I realize right now that I'm in the fight of my life, and I have tried to stop looking at pornography, but I just can't swing it, man. I know that my marriage is on the line, and this stuff is destroying me. I just can't get rid of it or, or insert whatever it is that you are struggling with personally. Shane, you don't know me, man. I'm trying, but I just can't. Kick this thing. I know that feeling. I I think we all know that feeling. Everybody in here to some measure knows what it's like to be in the midst of a struggle that you just can't seem to overcome. And your weakness is exposed because you definitely can't do it on your own. And so you find yourself sitting here tonight confronted with your sin, your addiction, your sin struggle, whatever it is, and you feel like there's no solution, there's no hope. In fact, you are just so incredibly exhausted because there probably feels like a million moments in your life and in your struggle where you have cried out to God and begged for Him to take this thing far from you. And for whatever reason, He feels very, very quiet and very, very far away. But our hope is this. Our hope is that in the million moments where it feels like God is, is very far away, there always exists that one moment where He could come in and change everything. He could change you. He could transform you. He can bring restoration and healing. He can shine light even in the midst of what appears to be complete and total darkness. And so that's my prayer is that wherever you are, whatever it is that you walked in here with tonight, that God would meet you and that He would heal you, that He would, that he would minister graciously to your heart and to mine. 
And before we get too deep into this thing, I think I just need to clarify something very quickly. Some of you may be in here and like, cool, I can check out of this sermon because I'm good. I'm not an addict. You know, I'm not really struggling with anything right now. I'm not on drugs. Pretty much everything is fine for me. But what I want to show you is that, that we are all addicts. Every one of us, without exception. Even the word, just think about it. Even the word addict sounds offensive, doesn't it? It's one of those words that we reserve for those people out there. You know, not us, just those folks out there who are addicted to to drugs and alcohol or some kind of substance abuse. That's how we categorize addicts. It's definitely not us, it's somebody else. But even clinically, uh, the word uh, addict has, has been expanded, not just to include substance abuse addiction, somebody who's addicted to things like drugs, alcohol, but there's now also what's uh, widely accepted in, in psychology and, and such is this thing called process addiction. So you may not be addicted, addicted to something in, in, the, in the vein of like drugs or anything like that, but rather for you, your vice, your thing is, is shopping. Right. Or it's uh, your whatever, whatever that process is for you eating. Those are the kinds of things that that uh, our culture now considers to be some kind of addiction. And, and that right there probably just leveled the playing field for many of us. I don't know how many drug addicts there are in here, but I'm sure there's a whole lot of fellows who are who are watching pornography on a regular basis. Or there may be a whole lot of us who are addicted to our Instagram likes and we can't stop looking at our phone 24-7. That's an addiction. We are all addicts in some measure. And then, get this, right? Don't just take my word for it. The Bible takes that a step further. Paul, in the passage that we read tonight, Romans chapter 7, verse 19, listen to what he says. Let me read it for you again. He says, For I do not do the good that I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, thank you, Jesus. I can't even understand what this dude is saying. Verse 20. Now, if I do, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Paul, in the midst of all of his lofty theological exposition, while he's planting churches and writing half of the Bible, sounds very, very real here, doesn't he? We all know what this feeling is. We've all been acquainted with this feeling. We all have been ensnared at one point or another by something that we wanted so desperately to rid ourselves from, whether, whether it be uh, because of some kind of conviction that we have, There's that feeling, that lingering feeling in the back of your brain that what you're doing is something that you should not be doing. We want to get rid of that thing in our lives because we experience some kind of conviction. Or maybe it's just because we're afraid of the consequences, right? We're scared where this thing is ultimately going to lead us. Whatever it is, we all know what it's like to be ensnared by something, to wrestle with that thing. And for whatever reason, you just feel like you can't snap yourself out of it. The Bible would say it like this. It says like a dog returning to its vomit over and over again. For reasons we just may not understand, we find ourselves returning to our folly. Even if you have a desire to do good, Paul says, it's simply not enough. And then eventually you arrive at this place where you have that internal conversation, that wrestling, where you throw something against the wall and you cry out, what is wrong with me? What in the world is going on? Well, Paul locates for us the problem. He tells us what's going on. 
He says, I keep doing the things I don't want to do because of the sin that dwells within me. We keep trying to blow up the problem, our sin, struggle, and addiction. Here's how we try to solve the issue. We try to work harder, do better. We try to ultimately alleviate the issues in our lives through some kind of behavior modification. But the problem is not out here. It's not as, simply as, it's not as simple as changing a few things about your lifestyle. The problem is not out here somewhere. Paul says the problem is in here. Sin is not something you do, it's who you are. It's embedded into you from the day that you're born. It's part of your nature. And so that's why this thing is drastic, y'all. We can't simply make some, some small adjustment to our lifestyle links and expect, our, to, and expect to alleviate ourselves from these sin struggles. Paul says the issue is much, much deeper. And I want you to notice the contrast here. Paul, he says uh, that he wants to do good. But for him, the opposite of good is not just bad. If we were writing the Bible, that's probably what we would have used. We would have said the opposite of good is is bad. You know, I'm trying to do good, but I just got some problems, right? I just got a few problems. But for Paul, the opposite of good isn't just bad. For Paul, he says the opposite of good is evil. Evil. This is high treason. Our sin... When we live our lives contrary to the way in which God has called us to live, all of that sin is not simply our personal problems. It is us saying to God, you know what, I'm cool. I believe that you're out there. I'm pretty sure you probably exist. But if you don't mind, I'm going to do my thing. It is the dethroning of God. One hip-hop group uh, called Beautiful Eulogy, they have a song called The Size of Sin. I think they illustrate this really, really well. Listen to what they say. They say the size of sin is as small as a grain of sand, but separates between a wide ocean and dry land. Get this. It says it's bigger than bad habits. It's a matter of man seeking after God's spot, following in the same pattern as Adam. The smallest lie is enough for being indicted. The size of sin so big, it causes a cosmic fraction. And hell is the only relevant response to righteous reaction. And I think that's why many of us fall into an addictive sin cycle. Because if we're honest, we just don't really realize what we are up against. If you noticed, uh, in any, any kind of illustrated cycle of addiction, right? If you just Google this thing, cycle of addiction, there's a lot of different variations of it. But, but one thing that the majority of them have in common is that somewhere along this cycle of addiction, you will arrive at a stage called tolerance. You will arrive at a stage called tolerance. And, and tolerance is that thing that happens, that occurs in your life and in, in the midst of your addiction where you are no longer stimulated like you previously were by that thing which you are struggling against. If, if it, substance abuse is a really accessible example here. You're no longer, the, 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 whatever it is that you're taking in is no longer stimulating you in the manner that it should. And so that's the stage of tolerance. And the remedy most often for tolerance is, is easy. It is exactly what you think it might be. Take in more until you get the feeling that you're trying to get. And I think that's what is happening in the midst of our addiction and sin struggles, is we don't realize the magnitude of sin. And so we dive in. We, we, just, we, we just pretend as though we're immune to this thing. Some of us are ignorant enough to believe that we're good. It's just going to be this one time, right? And so you dabble. 
You give it a shot. And before you know it, it no longer is stimulating you in the manner in which it used to. And so one sin turns into two. Two sins turns into three. And, and, and then you look back on it all and you are far further than you ever imagined you were going to be. That's how sin works. And I wonder if some of us, I wonder if for some of us, sin has become a small thing to us. The Bible uh, tells the story of a guy named Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16. It, it says that Ahab was the most evil man who ever lived, right? That's, that's quite a, a description. I don't know how else you could say it. Literally the most evil dude who ever lived. And it would go on to describe Ahab like this. It says that, that for King Ahab, sin had become a trivial thing. Sin had become a trivial thing. I wonder if for, for many of us, sin has become a trivial thing. There, rem- there may remain that lingering feeling in the back of our minds that what we're doing is wrong. But even now, at this point, that's not enough to constrain us. And it's not until you realize the power of sin will you ever set yourself up to fight against it. That's why the first step in any 12-step recovery program isn't just simply trying to get the person to admit that they have an addiction. It's much bigger than that. The first step is trying to get them to see that they themselves are powerless to overcome it on your own. And Paul illustrates this power. In verse 23, Paul calls himself a slave to the law of sin. A slave. This is one of the Bible's favorite ways to talk about sin. It it refers to sin as as slavery or as mastery. 2 Timothy, here's a few examples. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 26. Paul says that sinners are ensnared by the devil and are held captive to do his will. Even Jesus himself says in John chapter 8 verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to it. This is the addictive power of sin. Sin is not something that we can tolerate. Sin is not a trivial thing. It's not just casually interested in you. Its desire is to consume every ounce of your being. Genesis chapter 4 says this. It says that when you walk out of your door, their sin is crouching, ready to have you, ready to ensnare you. It calls out to you with its promises, with its false promises of pleasure and satisfaction. Sin, addiction, here's the issue. Ultimately, addiction, ultimately our, ultimately our sin is saying to us, I can give to you what your God cannot That's the false promise of sin. I can give to you what your God cannot. That's why, that's what addiction is at its core. It's us enlisting something. Whether it be pornography, or drugs, or, or our, our social media platform, or shopping, or eating, whatever it is that you are struggling against. It's us enlisting this thing, rather than God, to give to us that which only God can provide. Like I said, maybe you're, maybe you're ignorant enough to think that you're just going to dabble in it just a little bit, right? Usually uh, our sin struggle uh, 
most often will, will come, rise out of uh, a feeling of distress or desire. It's one of those two things, distress. There's some kind of pressure going on in our lives and we need a place to run to. And so we, we run to whatever it is that we struggle against. Or, or simply it's just desire. I mean, sin wouldn't be an issue if it weren't enticing, right? But we want that thing. And so, so we, we dabble just a little bit, thinking that it'll just be this one time. But with every sin, listen to me, this is important. With every sin, you're injecting into yourself a power that is beyond you. There's this residual damage that you aren't even aware of. Because I think some of us can deceive ourselves into this. You ever have this feeling where you enter into some kind of sin struggle? And even in the back of your brain, you're realizing, hey, this probably ain't the best thing to do. But you do it anyway. And then after the fact, you look around and you realize it didn't really bother anybody else. That it didn't really affect or harm anybody else. And so you think you survived you think you made it out because it's not really an issue. Nobody's aware of it. Nobody's, nobody knows what's going on in your life. You didn't necessarily hurt anybody, right? But there's this all kind of residual effects that sin has in our lives. Tim Keller, old dude, smart dude. Here's what he says. He says, he says that whenever you sin with your mind, it doesn't just stay there, but it goes on to shrivel your rationality. Whenever you sin with your heart, It doesn't just stay there. It goes on to cripple all of your emotions. You think that you're liberating yourself, but it's actually robbing yourself of freedom because you're suppressing your ability to do good, to perceive good, and to desire good. To say it another way, here's what Tim Keller is saying. Every single time you say yes to sin, it becomes harder and harder to say no. And before you know it, you're returning to the very thing That's killing you. And so that begs the question, what in the world do we do? What do we do? How can we fight this addictive power of sin? Well, there's there's much that can be said here. Um, Like I said, this is just such a big deal. And I don't want to be trite and pretend that I have all the answers. But I do want to lead us to the place where I believe that freedom begins. It's not enough to acknowledge that sin exists. Generally, and even personally in your own life, we would tell our young people, we say it like this all the time, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that something has gone terribly wrong here. You can be aware of all the folly of this world, just turn on the news. It doesn't, it's, it's not enough to simply acknowledge sin present in your life. The path to freedom begins not just when you acknowledge your sin, but when you prevail upon that sin with something, with a desire for something greater, with a desire for something better. In his book, The Expulsive Power of New Affections, Thomas Chalmers says this. He says that in order to supplant old desires, desire for sinful things, you must overcome those desires for something. You must overcome them with a desire for something greater. It's not enough simply to wish your sin or your addiction away. It must be prevailed upon by a desire for something infinitely more satisfying. And we believe that thing to be Jesus. Surprise. I bet you didn't see that coming, right? It's Jesus. That's the thing that is ultimately, that's the only thing that will ultimately satisfy the longing of your hearts. Here's what Chalmers says. He says, the only way to dispossess the heart of old affections is through the expulsive power of a new one. 
It is therefore only when admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus that the spirit of adoption is poured out onto us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominantly supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of all its former desires. And the only way that deliverance is possible. Listen, I know it sounds overly simplistic. But listen, just hear me out. Every other remedy for our addiction, every other ideology and worldview, every other false god would try to remedy our issues like this. They would say the way out is to obey, is to try harder, get your, get your life together, get your button gear, grit your teeth, grind it out, and stop doing whatever it is that you're doing. They would just say work harder and get over it. Try hard. Keep the rules and you won't get into any trouble. But Paul says that it's when he's trying the hardest that his sin and evil lingers close by. If you're in here and you remain unconvinced of the power of sin, it's probably because you're not trying very hard to fight it. Your moral standard is way too low because anybody who has ever actually tried to fight sin out of their own strength and understanding has failed miserably. Go ahead and give it a shot. With every ounce of your being, try not to be manipulative for a week. Try not to be angry or deceptive. Give it a shot. Try not to be lustful. You will inevitably fail miserably. Because we don't have the means to overcome this stuff. But these false gods, these false ideologies, they would still try to tell us, try harder, keep the law, and you'll get what you deserve, right? How cute. You get what you deserve, whether, that is, whether that's good karma or good reincarnation or, or good luck or whatever it is that they promise to you. In other words, they want you to satisfy them. They want you to keep their rules. They want you to fulfill their law. Here's the distinctive difference of Christianity. Christianity says that Jesus has satisfied the law. Christianity says that Jesus paid the price for every time you could not. Christianity says that Jesus has satisfied God. Now your only job is to be satisfied in Him. Do you see the difference? Other worldviews command you to keep the law without giving you the resources to do so. John Bunyan uh, said it like this, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. I saw this on a photo once and I just started weeping. He said, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. The gospel gives to us the resource to overcome these sins that nothing else can. What the gospel does, listen to me, the gospel takes everything that you're running after, everything that you are, are seeking for your satisfaction, whether that be your, your sexual promiscuity, your social status, your, your wardrobe, whatever it is for you. The gospel takes everything that you're seeking your identity and satisfaction in and it snatches it by the collar and it calls it to account for itself. It brings it into view with the Lord Jesus. And it sets them side by side. And it liberates you, finally for the first time, to see that Jesus is better. And that everything you want, everything you need, is found in Him. The Gospel says that worship is the way. That's the resource that the Gospel gives us. Worship. It's been said 
that addicts have a better understanding of worship than the Christian does. Because an addict is willing to sacrifice everything that they have in order to obtain whatever it is that they're after. You will worship something. You will give yourself to something. It will either be the things of this world or it will be God. And both demand complete and total allegiance. They want every ounce of who you are. They both want your whole life. The only difference is only God Himself is willing to give His life for you first. Nothing else is willing to die for you. Nothing else loves you enough to send that which is most precious to Him to take the form of a man, to pay the price that, you deserve, that, that we could not pay, to, to die the death that we deserved. Only God is willing to die for you. When you look upon Jesus, when you see Him as He is, when you see His surpassing worth, that's when you want to rid yourself of anything that would keep you from laying hold of Him. And I'm not trying to play y'all like this is, this is always an instantaneous thing. Like I said from the beginning, uh, some of you guys right now are in the midst of the fight of your life. And it may take a very, very long time. But the same is true that maybe all it takes is one moment in His presence. And He comes in. And He completely overhauls everything. He changes you and restores you. And the Holy Spirit, He moves on your heart and allows you to see that everything you've been looking for is found in Him. When you consider the cross, when you see that Jesus died in full view of all of your sin and that through His death and resurrection, He takes it all away, all of your guilt, when you struggle and you fail, that guilt and, and the, that shame that floods you, all of that, all of your shame, He takes it all away. And in its place, he, he offers to you the promise of eternal life. When you see Jesus, that's, that's the place of freedom and liberty. When you see how beautiful He is, the surpassing worth of our King, and when you worship, when you lay hold of all that He is, and let Him satisfy you. Let Him fulfill you. That's the place of liberty. That's when those addictions and the, the, those sinful desires can be supplanted. And your life gets overhauled. And now all you want is Jesus. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with. And then I'll, I'm going to get out of your way. Uh, toward the end of his book, uh, The Silver, Ch- Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis, um, he, he illustrates this thing all beautifully. Uh, the children are weeping. Because King Caspian has died, right? And they've journeyed throughout the majority of the book in complete and total darkness. And then there's this scene when Aslan arrives. Aslan is a type of Christ. And he shows up and he, and he changes everything. Aslan appears and they find themselves in the bright light of his presence. And listen to what they say. Listen to this. He says, I have come, said Aslan in a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself so bright and so real and so strong that everything else began at once to look pale in his to look pale and shadowy in his presence. That is my hope is that we would behold the King Jesus in all of his beauty and all of his majesty and that everything else in our lives would just pale in his presence. Here's my simple prayer for you all is that we would be so full of Jesus that we wouldn't have any room for anything else. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.